Welcome to Mysteries, Myths, and More. I'm your narrator, Joyce Keller Walsh. My intention is to use this podcast to tell a story each month, sometimes fiction, sometimes not, that I hope you'll find interesting, engaging, and provocative. Forgotten Lives, Part 3. Valerie Berger Spies. That's S-P-I-E-S-S. I never met Valerie Berger Spies in life. But a silver urn containing her ashes sat on a shelf in the living room of our Boston home during the winter of 1982. Although she died in Costa Rica, my husband John and I planned, in early summer, to take her remains for burial in a remote area of northern Quebec province in Canada. Why she wanted to be buried there is the story of this podcast. What little I know about Valerie Spies' early life comes from some passports and documents we brought home from her house in Heredia, which is about six miles north of San Jose, the capital of Costa Rica. It's a mountainous area with a cloud forest, lush and green, which is perhaps somewhat reminiscent of the Alps in summer. Valerie was born in Switzerland on December 4, 1898, to Carl and Margarita Spies. Margarita was also Valerie's middle name. She always said she grew up in the castle on the Rhine River waterfall in the canton of Schaffhausen. Yes, a real castle, which I'll come to later. We have only a few photographs of her as a child, all on a type of sepia, semi-gloss cardboard about six inches long and four inches wide with the unreadable name of a professional photography studio at the bottom. In one of the photos, there are two other young children posed shoulder to shoulder with Valerie. Siblings, perhaps? They have the same heart-shaped face, brown eyes, and all have the same bangs. Valerie on the far right appears to be the oldest, about five or so, with darker and longer hair. In the middle is a younger girl with blonde hair, probably age one or two, and on the far left is a light-haired boy who looks to be around three or so. Not one of them is smiling, and in fact, they don't seem to be very happy to be there. Valerie in particular looks angry, as though someone told her how to pose and she wasn't having any of it. According to the many report cards she kept, Valerie was an excellent student, and even in the early photo, she seems to have an intense look about her. Besides some passports where Valerie is described as five foot five with brown hair and brown eyes, still unsmiling in her photos, is her marriage certificate to Otto Rainer Berger in 1921 in Czechoslovakia. At the time of their marriage, Otto was 27 and Valerie was 23. She took on his surname, but also kept her maiden name. Otto would have been about age 20 or so at the time World War I began in 1914, and age 24 or so when it was over. Did he serve in the military? His age makes him eligible, but we don't know. Trying to find the right Otto Berger in Austria or Germany is like trying to find the right Walsh in Ireland. What we do know is that two years after their marriage in 1923, Otto and Valerie emigrated from Europe to America, initially settling on Long Island. According to his passport, Otto was born in Austria of Slovak, quote-unquote, ethnicity. Quite possibly, his relatives lived in Czechoslovakia, and that's why they were married there. Valerie's father had already died five years earlier at age 70, when Valerie was 18. Her father was survived by her mother, who was 16 years younger than him. 
Marguerite died in 1933, ten years after Valerie and Otto left Europe. It appears from ancestry passenger lists that Valerie may have returned to Switzerland briefly around the time of her mother's death. I don't know Otto's occupation when they arrived in the U.S. during Prohibition, 1920 to 1933, but sometime later he was engaged in importing and distributing spirits, principally rum. His passport and Valerie's shows numerous trips to Jamaica. From what I've been told, he became quite wealthy with a commission on every bottle of rum he imported for distribution. In 1930, Otto was naturalized as a U.S. citizen. We have that particular document, but not Valerie's. Before 1922, the wife of a U.S. citizen, born or naturalized, automatically became a citizen. But after that date, when Valerie arrived, married women needed to meet the naturalization laws themselves. Apparently, Valerie did, as there is a barest of a naturalization decree, but no dates given. At Ancestry.com, I found that in 1942, Otto was issued a World War II registration card. However, we have no information to indicate that he served in the military. According to Wikipedia, when the U.S. entered World War II, all men from their 18th birthday until the day before their 45th birthday were made subject to military service, and all men from their 18th birthday until the day before their 65th birthday were required to register. So Otto, at age 49, would have been registered but not actually drafted. Aside from Otto's passport photo, he did look rather like a Burgermeister, the only photograph I've seen of him is in an outdoor setting where he is feeding a black bear cub with a baby bottle of what appears to be milk. A little on the husky side, he's wearing the equivalent of an L.L. Bean sportsman's outfit. It's very likely that the picture was taken on one of their trips to northern Quebec. From all reports, Valerie had a special affinity for bears. In Searching Ancestry, I found the following intriguing newspaper article in the Berkshire, Massachusetts, Evening Eagle, on 27 August 1946. James Bay Isle to be studied for botany lore. And this was put out by the Science Service. Washington. Botanical Exploration of Akamiski Island, a large but little-known island in James Bay, the southern toe of Hudson Bay, is to be the September job of an expedition headed by Reverend Arthem Dutilly, research professor of the Catholic University there. With Father Dutilly are Mr. and Mrs. Otto Berger of New York. Mrs. Berger speaks the language of the Cree Indians who live in that region and will serve as interpreter and also assist in the botanical work. Three Cree Indians accompanying the party to help in manning the two 20-foot canoes. Father Dutilly expects to bring his collections and photographs back to Washington early in October, end quote. In searching for information on Father Atem Dutilly, I found that he was born in Quebec in 1896, making him two years older than Valerie. He was, quote, an oblate missionary priest and celebrated botanist with a particular interest in Arctic flora. In 1933, at the behest of Pope Pius XI, he was appointed naturalist of the oblate Arctic missionaries. Dutilly would spend his summers traveling within the Arctic Circle, collecting soil, plant, and anthropological specimens to be prepared and sent to the Lateran Museums in Rome, end quote. 
As a researcher in the Department of Biology and Arctic Institute at the Catholic University of America in Washington, D.C., Father Dutilli brought back collections of Inuit artifacts from an expedition in March 1938, as well as collections of soils and plants. The collections are in the Smithsonian Museum and the Vatican. He was a distinguished scholar and published books and academic articles, including a 1943 scientific article, Byrophrite Flora of Eastern Coast of James Bay and its Islands. Byrophrite being a small, flowerless, moss-like green plant. It would be interesting to learn about that 1946 expedition, so I contacted the Catholic University Archives Department. However, the reply was that they had no specific information about Father Dutilli's expeditions, quote, other than what is given in the blog, The Archivist's Nook, listed here in the show notes. From the Berkshire newspaper article, it is apparent that the Burgers were in New York at the time of the expedition. As far as I can tell, they remained there until Otto's death at age 77 in December of 1970. Several years after Otto died, Valerie emigrated to Costa Rica where she lived on the Heredia mountainside in a modest, one-story cement cottage painted pastel pink with hanging baskets of multicolored flowers on the outside. It was no more lavish on the inside. Despite her wealth, Valerie lived plainly. But why there? We could only speculate. It's a beautiful country with a stable government, and the American dollar was strong at the time and widely accepted in place of colones, the official national currency. There was an influx of American expats in Costa Rica then, as there are American retirees now. But her nearest neighbor and friend, several miles up the mountain, was the Contessa von Tattenbach. Manon, as she was known, was of royal lineage in Austro-Germany going back at least to the 1300s, although other members of her family also lived in Costa Rica. Perhaps they immigrated after the war. While John knew the Contessa, I never met her for she died before Valerie. But I came upon an incidental reference to the Countess von Tattenbach as I was researching another subject. The reference appears in the book An English Wife in Berlin by Princess Evelyn Blucher, an Englishwoman who in 1907 married a Silesian prince, but that is another story. In the memoir of her life in Germany during World War I, Princess Blucher expresses her gratitude for the kindness of special women including the Countess von Tattenbach. That kindness, she writes, does one much good in the midst of the derision and jeers of the mob. There are five ladies, all of them Austrian by birth, who, even at times when the fever of international hatred was at its highest point, never behaved otherwise than tactfully and kindly towards me. These are the Countess M. Larisch, Countess M. Tattenbach, and the three ladies known as the Kinski sisters, Countess Henkel, Countess Clary, and Princess Lowenstein. Never by word or sign did they say anything to hurt my English feelings, and when I was in sorrow and their world was rejoicing, they would leave their family circle and come and spend a few moments with me, condoling and sympathizing with me in my grief, anxiety, or suspense. These are things one likes now to remember. End quote. I came by this accidentally, and when I first read it, I couldn't help think that these are the things that should be remembered, but which disappear so easily into the past. Perhaps, however, now they may be preserved in cyberspace. Given the Contessa's kindness towards this Englishwoman, whose native country is at war with her own, 
it is not surprising that Manon also extended that humane care to include animals, as did Valerie. It may have been that Valerie located in Costa Rica because of her friendship with the Contessa. I don't know, but friends they were. When Valerie died in January 1982 at age 83, she willed her house and property in Heredia to what was then the World Society for the Protection of Animals, WISPA. It became the site of the first public animal shelter in Costa Rica. Valerie was a longtime donor to the organization, and because she had no family and knew John well, she made him executor of her will. In fact, as she lay dying in a San Jose hospital, she called John. He left immediately from Boston, and when he arrived, Valerie said, Oh, John, at last you've come, and died shortly thereafter. As John was arranging her funeral, he asked me to help him, along with Gerardo Huertas, whom John newly hired to build the shelter on her property, to clean out her house and prepare it for what would become the new WISPA office in Central America. I took some vacation days from work and traveled for the first time to Costa Rica. By the way, all these years later, that facility still exists and is in the charge of a local animal welfare organization, while Gerardo has since become the organization's Director of Disaster Management for the Americas. What I remember from that event so many years ago is that there was a lot of boxing of the contents of the house to discard and a lot of floor mobbing because in Valerie's absence, her black terra, named Valentino, had escaped his cage and chewed through a plastic water pipe in the kitchen, flooding most of the house. The terra, T-A-Y-R-A, is a member of the weasel family found in Central and South America. Not a ferret, but not altogether unlike one, albeit much larger and more aggressive. When I asked Gerardo if he remembered what became of Valentino, he certainly did. He wrote to me that the Terra chased all the staff at the shelter as he was building it. Valentino moved at, quote, a somewhat slow yet continued cadence until he got them. He bit one of my fingers really badly and fought two German shepherds for fun. He then also, quote, managed to open the locks of any cages he was put into until Harada was finally able to place him on, quote, a small island in the middle of a private lagoon in the province of Aluela, where Valentino was finally reestablished in his native habitat. One strange experience that I had while I was there was when John and I went to visit an American expat, whom we now only remember as David. He had a finca or farm farther up the mountain, I guessed he was in his fifties or so, rather tall and bulky, and quite friendly. I'd been told that he had had an Ivy League education and came from a wealthy family from whom he was estranged. So much for tales, true or not. David walked us out behind his house to a railing that separated his yard from a pasture. Inexplicably, he produced a book of poetry and opened it to the poem, Ithaca, by Constantine Cavafri, which was published in translation from the Greek around 1924. Without explanation, he asked me to read it aloud to him, and without question, I did. I didn't use the American pronunciation of Ithaca, but for a reason I don't know, I pronounced it Ithaca. The island of Ithaca was the home of Homer's Odysseus, and I just spoke it the way I thought it should be said, right or wrong. The poem, referring to Odysseus's journey, is non-rhyming. I'm going to read it to you in light of what followed not long after. However, you can skip over this part if you want. Ithaca, translated by Edmund Keeley. As you set out for Ithaca, 
I hope your road is a long one, full of adventure, full of discovery. Lystrasgonians, Cyclops, Angry Poseidon, don't be afraid of them. You'll never find things like that on your way, as long as you keep your thoughts raised high, as long as a rare excitement stirs your spirit and your body. Lystrasgonians, Cyclops, Wild Poseidon, you won't encounter them unless you bring them along inside your soul, unless your soul sets them up in front of you. Hope your road is a long one. May there be many summer mornings when with what pleasure, what joy, you enter harbors you're seeing for the first time. May you stop at Phoenician's trading stations to buy fine things, mother of pearl and coral, amber and ebony, sensual perfume of airy kind. As many sensual perfumes as you can, and you may want to visit many Egyptian cities to learn and go on learning from their scholars. Keep Ithaca always in your mind. Arriving there is what you're destined for, but don't hurry the journey at all. Better if it lasts for years, so you're old by the time you reach the island, wealthy with all you've gained on the way, not expecting Ithaca to make you rich. Ithaca gave you the marvelous journey. Without her, you wouldn't have set out. She has nothing left to give you now. And if you find her poor... Ithaca won't have fooled you. Wise as you will have become, so full of experience, you'll have understood by then what these Ithacas mean. I recall that as I read, David stood unmoving as he looked out over the pasture and never commented. In fact, I think that ended our visit in awkward silence. I wasn't sure what to make of it, nor was John, so we simply went on with what we had to do. It was not long after that I learned that David had committed suicide. It seems to me now that perhaps this was meant to be his epitaph, and because perhaps he had already decided to end his life, that we were meant to somehow bear witness. If that were so, I didn't realize it at the time. It has taken me all these years to recognize it, perhaps because I grow nearer to my own finality, hopefully not too soon. I think he was marking his journey's end. I stayed in Costa Rica for only a few days on that visit, paying my respects to Valerie as she lay in repose at the funeral home. John hired two indigenous Indians as sentries for her around the clock. It was something he thought she would have appreciated due to her special relationship with the First Nations of Quebec province, which is why she wanted her ashes to be interred in the far country of the Tete de Bull, where she had spent so much of her time in her earlier life. All we know of that period of Valerie's life is that she regularly traveled to the far reaches at that time of Quebec to be with the native tribes. She lived with them, taught them beadwork, took canoe trips with them, and endeared herself to the tribe's people in a way that was uncommon for her time in the 1930s and her gender. She also worked on a dictionary of their language, translating it into French and English. The Tetable, it is thought, are part of the Adikamek peoples, the First Nations inhabitants of the land of the upper St. Maurice River Valley of Quebec province, about 200 miles north of Montreal. The Adikmek language is a branch of the Algonquian language, which is closely related to the Cree language. They do not, however, consider themselves as Cree. They apparently see themselves more closely aligned with the Innu, formerly known as the Nascapi Montagnier Indians in the eastern portion of the Quebec Labrador Peninsula. I'll come back to the Montagnier later in this podcast. 
Why were they called the Tête de Bull? The literal translation being roundheads. Well, according to the website nativelanguages.org, the name code is actually a French translation of a dikemek, which is a native word for a kind of whitefish. The same whitefish is called tête de bull, bull head, by local French Canadians, unquote. I doubt that the adikamek called themselves tête de bull. Why would they? The French colonists in their war with the British in the mid-1700s, ostensibly for control of the Ohio River Valley, pitted the Iroquois, who were allied with the British, against the Innu and Adikamek, who were allied with the French. It's difficult to find population numbers for the Adikamek prior to the French and Indian War, but between raging smallpox and the slaughter of the Adikamek by the Iroquois, their population is believed to have been tragically diminished. Today, they number a mere five to 7,000, living in three communities in Quebec province, each one on its own reserve, that is land that is legally owned and controlled by each community with their own chief and its own government, but they are also Canadian citizens, so they are subject to the laws of Canada as well. Of all the places Valerie could have chosen to spread her ashes, on the mountainside in Heredia where she lived and died, in Schaffhausen where she was born, or with her husband wherever he was interred, she chose her final resting place to be with the Adikamek. Thus, one spring morning, carrying Valerie's ashes in a special suitcase, we flew from Boston to Montreal. In Montreal, we met at the airport with a lawyer and a staff member from Wispa's Toronto office and boarded a five-place de Havilland Beaver on amphibious floats. The Beaver, as it was commonly called, was a high-wing bush plane designed for short takeoffs and landings and used for getting into remote areas. As we headed north over the vast, undeveloped woodlands, I could see below mile after mile of intact, flourishing forests with only a few rough logging trails to break the landscape. It felt as though we were going back to a more elemental time, a time before roads, cityscapes, and modern technology. I had only one other experience like that in my life. It was when John and I traveled by motorized canoe up the Bayano River in Panama to an isolated Kuna village. Many tourists are familiar with the Kunas of the San Blas Islands, but these indigenous people were the so-called interior Kunas, who lived near the Colombian border on an island apart from any tourists, apart from the Panama government, with complete hegemony over the river. They still lived in long houses, much as they'd done for centuries, with multiple families side by side, cooking and sleeping under a huge thatched roof on poles. Several years earlier, John had worked with Kunas on his second animal rescue project, Operation Noah II, during the construction of the Bayano Hydroelectric Dam, and we were traveling upriver to see Tomas, John's friend and project foreman. It was only because of that that we were allowed to enter Kuna territory, and only the Sahila, or village chief, could give permission for outsiders to visit. As our canoe cut through the water and the trees flanked each side of the boat, all traces of Panama City were left behind, and I had that same feeling of leaving the modern world for a more remote one, exactly what I was experienced that morning as we left Montreal. In flying towards Trois-Rivières, where the St. Maurice River meets the St. Lawrence, we passed over a single settlement of perhaps 30 or so small monopoly houses on barren ground, which, we were told, was built by the Canadian government as winter housing for the Adigamek. It was a sunny and clear day, and it seemed to me to be auspicious for the ceremony John had planned, but there was no one visible in the settlement below. 
Our pilot explained that as soon as it became spring, the Adikamek left those sterile houses and moved into the woodlands, which was home to them. We then flew north along the St. Maurice River, and as I looked down, there was a sight that remains vivid for me still, a line of canoes, one after the other, full of Adikamek peoples, paddling towards the place where we were to meet for the ceremony of interring Valerie's ashes. As we neared our destination, which was a Hudson Bay Company post, I realized why the plane was on floats. There was no airport, no runway, no landing area. We were going to land on the water and taxi to shore. Funny, but I didn't have a single apprehension about the flight or the landing. I was loving it all. As we docked and left the plane, we were met by an assemblage of various Quebec ministers and provincial officials to attend the occasion. Then, like a Technicolor movie, one by one, the canoes pulled up and the first people came ashore. Some 20 or 30 adults, followed by 10 or 15 children. As all gathered solemnly around the spot where Valerie's urn of ashes was to be interred, I stood to the side of the dedication and have no memory of any of the eulogies. The Canadian officials spoke in French, John spoke in English, and the Adikamek chief spoke in his native language. A plaque in Valerie's name was dedicated there to commemorate the fact that this was where she wanted to be. Not in Switzerland, not in the United States, not in Costa Rica, but here in the land beyond cities where she truly felt at home. If only we'd had the capability of recording it all. But it was years away from cell phones and we only had a still camera with us. I do have a photograph of John as he is giving his eulogy and one of me standing next to the airplane with numerous giggling Adikamek children around me. After returning to Boston, we put the small number of documents from Valerie's house away in a tote bag in a corner of the living room, along with a book she had, which I think translates to Indian Fables of North America, published in 1924. We intended to do something with her belongings someday, but what? Valerie and Otto had no children, and if there were any siblings, Valerie never indicated it. And the family name Spies in Schaffhausen seems again to be as common as Berger in Berlin. Not long after this, John and I were in Geneva for a conference, and we traveled north by train to Zurich, about a three-hour ride, to visit the Fruchs, as mentioned in an earlier podcast. Our intention was to then go on a little farther, only about half hour, to Schaffhausen to see where Valerie had lived in the castle on the Rhine, and perhaps find a relative of hers there. Approaching the structure made me think of a Disney castle where Sleeping Beauty might have lived. Castle Laufen, or in German Schloss Laufen, sits on a rocky promontory overlooking the Rhine River's strongest waterfall in Europe, so-called Rheinfall. It actually appears in many paintings and pictures as an imposing medieval stone fortress. Undergoing repair at the time, the castle was not as it had been, nor as it is now, but it was still imposing, rising up over the mist of the waterfall. The history of Schlosslaufen dates back to the 9th century AD. As of the 13th century, it became the home of the Baron Laufen, and as of the 15th century, it was owned by the von Fulach family, who sold it to the city of Zurich. It had several private ownerships after that, but today it is back in the hands of the canton of Zurich. Thirty years ago when we visited, it wasn't the prominent tourist destination that it is today. 
When we spoke to the then manager of Schloss Laufen, he wasn't able to confirm anything about the Spies family and speculated that perhaps they might have been the gardeners. We left, wondering if Valerie was perhaps exaggerating her birthright, although she did have in her documents a number of pictures of the castle around the turn of the century. When I recently contacted the canton of Zurich to inquire about the relationship between the species and Schloss Laufen, I received the following email message from the property administrator, quote, I found a remark at the European Patent Office where Mr. Karl Spies was listed with the address Schloss Laufen am Rheinfall on a document from 1898. And they show the document. Sadly, I have nothing more about the family Spies in the early 1900s, end quote. But aha, as it happens, Valerie's father was named Karl and she was born in 1898, evidently at the castle. So although the Spies family didn't own Schloss Laufen, they evidently did live there. The patent, by the way, is for a special kind of close hook. I don't know if Karl Spies had other patents or what his source of income was, but I hope this close hook was successful. In replying to the castle administrators, I have offered to send them our documents and the vintage postcards of Zurich, the castle, and Schaffhausen, but I didn't receive a response. I dearly wish some relative might come forward from this podcast to claim what's left of Valerie's effects. Unfortunately, as Gerardo relates, the rest of her files, which were kept by the Costa Rican lawyer for five years, were ultimately destroyed. So that is all I can tell you about this woman from Switzerland who cherished the company of the Adikamek First Peoples in life and in death. But there's a little more to the story from my perspective. As I've said before, life is full of mysteries. Never did I expect to travel to the place in northern Quebec where I had set my first produced play many years earlier. That play was called The Relations of Paul Lejeune. Relations meaning not relatives, but rather narratives. It was based on one volume of the Jesuit Relations, there are many, by Father Paul Lejeune, who established a mission at Trois-Rivières in the 1600s in what was then called New France. Lejeune's directive was to convert the indigenous people, that is, the Montagnier, to Christianity. As I am neither Roman Catholic nor Montagnier, I have no idea now why I settled on that subject matter. But I found the combination of dedication, even unto martyrdom, and the spiritual certainty of the missionaries a worthy dynamic to explore. In my apocryphal story, Lejeune is permitted some self-doubt, and the Montagnier become an evenly matched intellectual adversary. So never did I expect it. But there I was in northern Quebec, on land that might have looked very like it did in Lejeune's time, and among people whose ancestors might have encountered him. Sometimes things have a strange, serendipitous way of circling back on themselves, and I feel fortunate to have experienced that, by way of Valerie Berger Spies. I'd like to express my appreciation to the archivist at the Catholic University, to the property administrator at Schloss Laufen, which references you may see in the show notes to this podcast, and especially to Rado Huertas of the Costa Rica Office of World Animal Protection, who provided information and anecdotes and tried valiantly to locate any remaining files, only to discover they'd been destroyed. A cautionary tale for all who'd wish to preserve their life stories. Thank you for listening. I hope you'll come back for the next podcast with an excerpt from my new novel in progress, Dead Horse Swamp and the Feather Tree. 
If you like this podcast, please download and subscribe. It's free, and you'll find it on your favorite directories such as Apple, Google, Stitcher, TuneIn, and more. To learn more about me and my books, go to JoyceWalsh.com.